knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Where the kisses are hers and hers and his. Three's company too. Come and dance on our floor. Come and dance on our floor. Take a step that is new. Take a step that is new. We've a lovable space that needs your face. Three's company too. You'll see that life is a ball again. Laughter is calling for you. Down at our rendezvous. Down at our rendezvous. Three's company too. Okay, Chrissy, I'll get in the tub with you, then we can get it on. <laughs> time I've ever done this. <laughs> Maybe so, but girls are better at this than boys. <laughs> Come on, Chrissy, a little less talk and a little more action, okay? Okay, you do your part, I'll do mine. <laughs> I don't think it'll reach. <laughs> Charlie, what are you doing? Never mind what I'm doing. What are they doing? Nothing. Oh, don't give me that. I heard. Rub-a-dub-dub, come hop in my tub. I heard all of it. You heard all of what? What is going on in here? Yeah, I was just asking. How'd you get your clothes on so fast? Uh, what? What? Don't act so innocent. I know what's what. But how'd you get your clothes on so fast? Excuse me, what is he talking about? I don't know. Rub-a-dub-dub, -dub, come hop in my tub. What are you talking about? Jack, are you going to help me or not? Aha! How'd you get your clothes on so fast? What? Another innocent. I know what you were doing. Putting up a shower curtain? That's right. You're... <laughs> a shower curtain? Well, of course. What'd you think we were doing? Well, it sounded like you were... <gasps> Mr. Furley, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Why? What did he do? Uh, nothing, nothing. I, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm, I'm so ashamed. Oh, no way. I'm taking you to bed whether you like it or not. Aha! Uh -huh. This time I got you dead to rights. Oh, Mr. Furley, you don't understand. I don't have to understand. I caught you red-handed. Mr. Furley, it's not what it looks like. Oh, don't give me that innocent stuff again. You got the evidence right in your hand. Look. Yeah, hello, I'm Tom Latham. Mr. Latham? Yes. Mrs. Latham's husband? Yeah, that's usually the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, you poor man here. Come there, sit down. How about some coffee? Thank you. You really shouldn't be here. Why? Isn't today my wife's lesson? <laughs> you know about Jack and your wife? Sure. You don't mind? Of course not. She has to learn somehow. Uh, actually, the whole thing was my idea. It was? 
Well, sure, guy gets tired of the same thing night after night. He wants a little variety. So you sent her to jail? Right. But I still don't understand why you're here. Oh, I don't know. I thought it'd kind of be fun to watch. <laughs> Mr. Latham, I can't tell you how sorry I am. Just <laughs> Hello, Mr. Johnson. All right. Walter. Well, of course I like you, Walter. I wouldn't do it if I didn't like you. <laughs> Now, Walter, don't worry. Everyone's a little nervous their first time. <laughs> Trust me, Walter. When you see how much fun it is, you'll wonder why we didn't do it sooner. <laughs> see you tomorrow night, Walter. All right. Bye-bye. Hi, Larry. Bye, Larry. Uh, the bell doesn't work. I think I can fix it. shouldn't do it. Come on, Sarah. What's the sense of having it if you can't use it? Hey, watch those hands. Would you relax? I'll have your bell ringing in no time. Hey, get your hands off her. Do you want to fix it? Uh, no thanks, pal. I, I got enough time on my hands. You know what I like about this show? It doesn't try to change the world or solve any major problems. All it does is make us laugh and forget our own cares. That's my kind of comedy. All right. Welcome to episode six of the Cultural Future Futures Exchange. I am Jeff, and that I'm is Slip. Slip. Hello. And as you might have guessed, the uh, topic of today's episode is Come and Knock on Our Door, Three's Company. Uh, very excited for, for this show, as the show of Three's Company was a big part of uh, both Slip and Mind's life, and we'll get into all that. But first, a reminder of the Cultural Futures Exchange CFX conceit. This is a uh, place where we examine the different elements of cultural ephemera, movies, music, or TV, as in today's episode. Dive into the context, the time it came out, what's happened since our take on it as a future valuation sort of idea. Should you go long? Will the value go up, go short? The value will decrease or stay neutral. Again, if this seems like a weird thing, just hang in there. It'll become obvious pretty quickly. It's not that difficult of concept to grasp. So we will talk about Three's Company here today. Uh, a really emblematic from a TV point of view of the late 1970s of Southern California. Um, I can fondly remember watching this as a kid, as I think you did as yeah, well. Yeah, I did. So and too, and I right? think, uh, again, the conceit here is, you know, we're looking at things and trying to see if they'll have an impact over time. And, and a lot of this is just shit that we grew up with. And we're trying to see if it still holds up even to us now. Um, so I think it's an excuse just to kind of get, you know, 
kind of divorce nostalgia from, <clears throat> you know, whether this stuff is actually good in any way and would affect people who didn't grow up with it. Yeah, absolutely. And and in this case, I think it has all that in spades of trying to divorce nostalgia yeah. from, is it actually right, good? Right. And a lot of the, the, the cringy uh, aspects of the show that uh, we will get into here shortly. One, one of the interesting things about the show sort of setting the stage here is this is the late 1970s. This was about, you know, 10, a good 10 years or so after you could say maybe the, the beginning or the, the, rising uh, peak of the sexual revolution in the in the 1960s at least in the in the US uh, elsewhere as well and this show 10 years after the fact uh, again in the late uh, 1970s had a lot of elements of that and really tried to take on a lot of elements of that especially for a younger mid late 20s uh, sort of group of of people that this show was centered around um in a lot of ways, it was also a uh, time where a lot of norms were being pushed. A lot of uh, sex on TV uh, was becoming the norm. In fact, there was an article in February of 1978 in Newsweek, which was you know kind of one of the big news weekly magazines like Time Magazine, uh, another one at the time. I'm not even sure if it's still around now or if it was bought by somebody for something, but the the idea about this article was talking about how TV had become very fleshy. Uh, the, the word they use in the in the uh, article is jiggly. Uh, they talked a lot about shows like uh, Charlie's Angels, of course. Uh, I think they even referenced stuff like Wonder Woman and other of the shows where it seemed that the, the goal seemed to be as racy uh, as possible. And I think this show was clearly slated, uh, and you know, the idea of the show was to be in that vein when you yeah, i would agree and i think uh the show you know when it starts off it's pretty edgy you know if you look at it now i think uh you know it, it dealt with uh sexuality in a way that was more frank than it ever been done really um and it also dealt with homosexuality albeit not in the most progressive way that we would think of now but it it did mention it um and it was it was yes. a time when other shows were doing edgy stuff too i mean you had norman lear shows you had uh, All in the Family, uh, which dealt with racism, rape, and then you had Maud, uh, spinoff from that show that even had an episode on abortion. So, you know, you were dealing with a lot of more uh, topics, a lot more frankly, and uh, Three's Company um, started out that way. I think it uh, definitely addressed the sexual revolution in a way and kind of acknowledged it, its existence in a way that hadn't been really done previously to that extent. And even though the show, and you mentioned homosexuality, it was uh, maybe not the most progressive or direct thing. It was more, uh, I would say, harmless yeah. in the sense of, you know, not being, uh, you know, aggressive or, or violent or, I mean, it was, it was treated a, a little a, a little with kid gloves in some sense, maybe not in the most direct modern way that, you know, shows would do it or, or most people would think about it, but it at least wasn't, you know, any kind of gay bashing. Yeah, or, there wasn't you know, really hatred. Negative There's no hatred here. It's right. more ridicule and, and it's more benign and it's it's acceptance of a kind and tolerance of a kind of a kind that I think uh, yeah. you probably, you know, couldn't have seen before um, this decade. And so I think um, that's true. We'll talk about that a lot more, um, obviously, because it's uh the elephant in the room, so to speak, with this show and how it plays now. The other thing about the show, uh, 
you know, even though it was sort of more advanced and progressive from a sexual point of view, um, you know, the characters were either directly directly implied, and I mean, nobody, they didn't have any really sex scenes or anything like that, but the, all the characters were either directly implied or strongly hinted at to be sexually active, including the women, although the women's sexuality was in a way very old-fashioned where you had all sorts of male characters as the, sort of the guardians of what they should right. do and who they should be with and all that kind of stuff that we'll get into. Um, you know, a never-ending stream of jealous boyfriends and brothers and fathers and landlords, uh, you know, were, were, were part of that. Also, again, keeping in mind this is the late 70s, you had this uh, subtext of was big in the culture around disco, around the leisure suit thing, around swinging to some degree, although it was very, very lightly touched on um, in Three's Company. But you had all those kind of late 70s, which are now kind of nostalgic tropes in a sense. But they were happening in live and omnipresent, I think, in the late 70s, especially maybe geared towards more youth culture. That's true. That's true. Definitely. All right. So we've been talking about this show. We're assuming most of you know what the show is, but if you've been living under a rock and have never heard of the show, here's the basic conceit of it. There's this dude, his name is Jack Tripper, uh, and he lives with two women in late 70s, early 80s, uh, beachy Santa Monica area. I had mentioned in the last episode, when I was a kid, around directly around this time, hanging around uh, Santa Monica Beach a lot, um, and saying it was where I was hanging around was exactly where the opening montage of Three's Company happened. So that that's absolutely the case in Santa Monica, uh, near right. Mount Pier, near the beach in the yeah, Santa Yeah, the Monica first area. montage is basically Jack, you know, you see Jack riding a bike on the beach and he, he kind of falls off the bike when he sees this hot woman. By the way, fun fact, that woman with the brunette <clears throat> riding the bike is actually Suzanne Summers wearing a wig. Um, uh, but... Uh, but yeah, they had multiple montages over the years. And we have to remember, this show is actually started in the late 70s, but it went on for eight fucking years, which listening yeah. to the opening montage, they did that shit for a <laughs> misunderstanding of it for eight fucking years. You know, <laughs> it's crazy that yeah. that lasted. And and by the way, I will bring this up again, but the show was insanely popular. I mean, for a while, it was the most yeah, popular thing on it television. Was. It was like the number one rated show. Um, but they also had montages at the Los Angeles Zoo later. And they also had one yep. actually at the pier, um, the Santa Monica Pier. You can see in the background with the three of them kind of having a day out on the pier. So it's very rooted in, yep. in Santa Monica uh, at the time. Yeah, and, and it was filmed there live. It was it was not a set or anything like that. So again, if you listen to episode five about the Beach Boys and you're curious what Santa Monica looked like in the late 70s that I was talking about, it goes, go and watch those opening montages. It's exactly that. Um, the, so Jack was living with these, uh, two female, uh, roommates. They were all single, um, in order to, uh, pass muster with the landlord of being a single man living with two women at the time. He, uh, Janet, I think in the early episode convinced, uh, the uh, landlord, Mr. And Mrs. Roper that he was gay. So it would be okay for him to live there apparently. And we'll get into all why they felt the need to do that. Um, the, as you heard in the intro clips and, and Slip just mentioned the show, the basis of the show was sexual innuendo and mishearing things and thinking they're hearing very salacious things, but it actually almost always, uh, turns out to be innocent. It was sort of the, the, uh, story arc for pretty much every single episode over the eight years. And we're talking like hundreds of episodes, which is 
pretty amazing that you could come up with new things to do there, which you actually couldn't. <laughs> right, yeah, we'll talk too. about that too. <laughs> um, I would say that pretty much every kid of our generation that I know watched this show. Um, I watched it, Slip watched it, obviously. Both of our wives who are, are you know, in the same age bracket, we all watched it. All the kids that I knew growing up watched it. Um, it, it was, uh, it, it's weird. We all watched it, uh, but it, it was really a farce show, especially turned into a farce show as, as we'll get into the, just a background, quick background on the characters that we will be talking about a lot. So if, again, if you're not as familiar with the show, you'll get the, the sense of it. The main character played by John Ritter was a character named Jack Tripper, uh, who was a, uh, was in the Navy after the Navy was in school to become a, a chef. And early show uh, storylines were him in chef's training at, at cooking school and all that. In later uh, episodes, he had his own res uh, restaurant. One of the female roommates was Chrissy Snow, uh, played by Suzanne Summers. Very clearly, you know, especially of that time, the dumb blonde, and they played that up a lot with, you know, a lot of her ridiculous dialogue there. Um, the other female roommate was, the character's name was uh, Janet Wood, played by the actress Joyce DeWitt. She was a brunette, and she's a little more level-headed and staid right. and, and a little more serious and kind of a foil uh, to Chrissy in a lot of ways. Right. right, she's the smarter of the two, you know, even from the get-go. Right. I mean, we'll talk about the evolution of Chrissy's character a little more later. But, but yeah, I think, um, you know, and we should mention... What's interesting about this show, too, uh, contrasting to 90s shows like uh, Friends, you know, and things like that. I mean, the apartment yeah. is realistic for their economic, you know, uh, basic basic status. Right. A lot of times you see these apartments right. in the 90s, you know, friends live in this New York apartment that would look like it cost a million dollars to buy. You know, it was like this huge apartment and half of them don't have good jobs, you know, whereas in this show, the apartment is very small. I mean, obviously. We'll talk more about Larry, the upstairs neighbor, but he has the same apartment and he's one guy, right? And these three are sharing this yeah. tiny apartment. Two of them have to share a bedroom and they're all barely scraping by. There's a lot of shows about them not being able to make rent and things like that. You know, Jack is is a student and he does odd jobs. Chrissy, I don't even know half the time she even has a job, you know, but she does. There are some episodes where, you know, there's one about her boss and you know, so she has these kind of odd jobs and then Janet just works in a flower shop. So they're pretty low income. Uh, and that's kind of interesting, too, with what would happen later with sitcoms. Yeah. And I think Chrissy was a secretary. At right. Some she does different well. stuff. I, right. And so just so does Jack, because yeah. he's mostly a student. That's his main thing. Until later in the show, he obviously gets gets a job at a restaurant. He's a regular job and a boss we'll talk about. And then he's got eventually his own restaurant. Um, way late in the show. Jack's Jack Bistro. Bistro. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, other characters that we'll mention, there is Cindy Snow, who in the, in the, uh, uh, in the show kind of lore here is Chrissy's cousin. Suzanne Summers left the show over a pay dispute. And we'll, we'll get into that. And, and you know, of course, in sitcom land, you have to have a cousin come in and, and you know, take her place. She was on the show for, I think, a year and made some other guest appearances. Uh, more permanently, the third roommate uh, became uh, a woman by the name of Terry Alden, the character's name. She was a nurse. It's played by Priscilla Barnes. And she was on the show, I think, until it, until it ended. 
The um, landlords played a prominent uh, role in this show who lived downstairs, uh, directly, I think, downstairs from, uh, you know, Jack and, and, and the two ladies. Um, the, initially, uh, the landlords were uh, Helen and Stanley Roper, uh, played by uh, Audrey Landry, Audra Landry and Norman Fell. Uh, they were a married couple, older married couple who lived downstairs and who, who owned the building. And we'll, we'll get into all of our favorites around them. Uh, Stanley was kind of like the typical uh, put upon husband who's not interested in his wife sexually, is up to all sorts of shenanigans. Uh, Mrs. Roper, Helen Roper, was kind of a 70s soul mama wearing a lot of moo-moos and kind of had an afro and wore a lot of, you know, kind of psychedelic looking stuff. And she seemed to be very horny and always wanted to get with Mr. Roper, who was not interested in her sexually. And she was very frustrated by this. Again, I kind of uh, was uh, a precursor to uh, Peg and Al Bundy in, in some ways, uh, very influential there, I would argue. Yeah, and it's it's interesting um, too, because the sex is permeates the show so much that even the older generation is like, that's all they talk about too. So it's interesting. That's all they talk there. about, right? Yep. Later, the Ropers left the show and tried to do a spinoff, which we'll, we'll get into. It was replaced uh, the, in the in the store and in the, in the uh, show uh, lore. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Roper sold the building to a guy named Bart Furley, who had his brother Ralph uh, be the superintendent and kind of be the landlord, uh, you know, in place there. Maybe the building superintendent. That's played. By the great Don Knotts, and we'll get into that. And and Ralph Furley was very much a a creature of the '70s, or what he thought the '70s were, and his outfits and leisure suits. And even if you didn't watch the show, you have no doubt seen, uh, you know, Ralph Furley and his this like outlandish, uh, you know, little leisure suit outfits, uh, which are just amazingly classic. Uh, the upstairs neighbor and Jack's best friend is a guy named Larry Dallas. Uh, who was a used car salesman and was very much on the single scene, dating a lot and influencing Jack in maybe some not so positive ways that we will get into. Um, and then a couple other minor characters that would come along. Those were the main ones. When Jack got a job after cooking school in a real restaurant, the name of his boss was Mr. Angelino. He worked at Angelino's restaurant. The busboy or assistant chef or whatever he was was a was a guy named uh, Felipe, um, who was always trying to sabotage Jack because he wanted to be the chef. And there was another character who was in it for half of the season. This uh, woman, who, an older woman, who was probably in, supposed to be in her early forties, uh, by the name of Lana, who was very interested sexually in Jack, of course. And Jack was not interested in her on the show, which actually in real life led to her leaving the show because. John Ritter was like, that's ridiculous. She's an attractive woman. Jack would have totally been in her. Right. Um, but uh, Mr. Furley, the landlord, was very in Alana. So you had this kind of triangulation of everybody trying to get with everybody else, but not really. And it was all very salacious, but also uh, kind of innocent at the same time. And and we'll get into a lot of the, the, the hijinks with some of these characters as we go on here. Um, but first, let's uh, talk about where the show came from. Yeah, yeah, so, I'll so, talk about that. So, so basically, um, the show is based on a British uh, series called Man About the House, uh, which was uh, aired between uh, 1973 and 1976. And there was even a feature film uh, in 1974. 
and this had the three same characters, except their names were different. Like Jack Tripper was uh, named Robin Tripp, but he had the same essential, you know, he was an aspiring chef. They lived in London. Um, but it's almost like if Three's Company uh, were cast with uh, Ron Wood as Jack Tripper, <laughs> fucking, uh, fucking Susie Quattro as the Janet character, and fucking uh, uh, Sandy Denny as Chrissy. You know, it's, it's so different in feel. It's so much more early 70s, but, um, you know, as we'll talk about, it's so similar. You know, they basically really adapted it. Now, originally, they tried to be more original. Uh, they got, uh, you know, acclaimed MASH writer Larry Galbart to write a pilot. Um, John. I, hey, I just got to talk about the British thing yeah. for a second before you talk about the American one. If you watched Austin Powers and you thought all the jokes about the teeth were over the top. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just go and watch this man about the house because like all of these characters have like those Austin Powers yeah. teeth that you would just never freaking see in an American sitcom. Right. Ever. right. Totally. Totally. It's anyway, worth checking sorry, out on go YouTube. Ahead, you're talking. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's entertaining in the way three's company is entertaining because it's the same, but it's also got that extra Britishness. Um, that's interesting. It, it's very Austin Powers in the look and feel around like early seventies London, because this British show was like 73 or 74. Yeah, 73 right? to 76 is when it ran. Okay. And we'll talk right. more about what happened with it in a bit. Um, but, you know, so originally it was tried, they tried to adapt it um, with Larry Gelbart and they, uh, you know, John Ritter was the, was still there. He, he, he was there from the beginning and he was a cast as a character named David Bell, who was actually a, really good cook, but he was mainly an aspiring filmmaker. And then he had two roommates, uh, Valerie Curtin as Jenny and Suzanne Zenor as Samantha. So Jenny was the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the Janet character and Samantha was the Chrissy character. Right. So that pilot wasn't accepted. Part of it, the problem was, is that it was already, you know, very sexual and it, it, the standards and practices at ABC uh, kind of said, there's no way you can make this show, right? Uh, <laughs> but it was pushed by Fred Silverman, the head of ABC. He believed in it. And so they tried, They commissioned yet another pilot um, that brought in Joyce DeWitt to replace mm -hmm. Valerie Curtin. And then Chrissy was played by another actress named Susan Lanier. They actually went through a few actresses. They had trouble really nailing Chrissy. Um, and uh, so to speak. Right, Fred Silverman had seen um, Suzanne Summers. I think on the Tonight Show, and Suzanne Somers was mainly known before this as the girl at the end of American Graffiti, right? She's the girl in the white uh, convertible that Richard Dreyfuss's character sees and is like kind of a fantasy character. So she got pulled in, and she was, you know, the the, the one. You know, they basically figured that out. Um, so the third pilot was actually developed by a team of Don Nickel, Michael Ross, and Bernie West, who were famous for adapting another British show, uh, Till Death Us Do Part, into the very acclaimed uh, and groundbreaking sitcom All in the Family. So they had a record of this. And I, I didn't know any of this, you know, when I went into this, that this was all based on British shows, that either one of these shows are based on British shows. So this tradition of Americans adapting British shows goes back way back, and it's continued to this day. I mean, obviously, the biggest example of this being the American office, which was a massive success here. Uh, the British office went on for a few short seasons, and then Ricky Gervais went on to other things. But um, 
the American office went on for nine years and was a blockbuster show and is weirdly even more popular now than it was then. Um, so it's that tradition has continued. Now, uh, the original pilot of Three's Company, the third pilot, the one that actually aired, um, was called Man About the House after the original um, show. And it is almost identical to that show, line for line. You know, they basically just took the same. same it's similar script. to The Office first season yeah. where the first few seasons of The Office are basically, first few episodes of The Office are almost rewrites of the British show, and then they went off in their own direction. Three's Company is the same way. Uh, there were a couple of other shows they adapted that first season. One was called um, And Mother Makes Four, which is the second episode of both shows, and then No Children and No Dogs, um, which were pretty close to the originals. Uh, no Children, No Dogs, though, Actually, in Three's Company, I, I was trying to, we were trying to, we were talking about this, we were trying to ascertain, well, what about the misunderstandings, you know, that we heard at the beginning of the show that characterized so much of Three's Company's humor? Was that also in the British show? And actually, the first evidence I can find in Three's Company of the misunderstanding is in this episode, where um, Jack and Chrissy are in the kitchen and they're fondling this dog and he's saying, let me rub your tummy and stuff. And then Janet hears it from outside and thinks he's getting it on with Chrissy. Um, that is not in the British show. So that might have been an, a more original uh, aspect to Three's Company that was brought in by these writers. However, as my wife points out, this is nothing new. It was a classic comedy trope. So it's not like it was anything new. But maybe the fact that every one of these was sexual was somewhat new. Uh, at any yeah. rate, so that's that's basically the story of how the show got developed. The one other thing I should point out is that because of all the delays and Three's Company was being pushed back by on a you know pushed back because the standards and practices were nervous about you know bringing up homosexuality the sexual nature a man living with two women at the time uh, you know and not being married uh, was a huge uh, taboo so the show kept getting pushed off and going back between ABC and CBS and all this eventually. Um, the show was a mid-season replacement, and I should note that it was the most popular mid-season replacement of in history. You know, it was a blockbuster from the wow. get-go. It had huge ratings, and the show was incredibly popular. Um, Fred Silverman uh, championed it, and it eventually became, um, you know, the show that we know. And I should also note that the other thing that's interesting they copied from the British show is the British show, as I mentioned, the first show, Man About the House, only ran for three years. But that's because they immediately made a spinoff called George and Mildred, which was about the Ropers. They were also called the Ropers in the British show, although they had different first names. And that show was also really successful. That ran for I don't know how many years. I didn't get the facts on that, but it was like a long time. Interestingly enough, the American Can show did the same thing. They created a spinoff called The Ropers with um, Stanley and Helen Roper moving to kind of a more fancy building and selling the building they, you know, they were they were landlords of. That show an early uh, show that Jeffrey Tambor was right, in right. Jeffrey Tambor was, was one of his early, and yeah. he's in a few Three's Company's episodes too. He plays different characters. Yep. But that show was a bomb. So it only lasted a year and a half, I think, because the, you know, the whole Stanley have sex with me. No, Helen, you're gross, whatever. It gets really old really fast. It's great as a side thing on Three's Company, but as the whole show, it kind of lost steam. Yeah. And then, of course, after Three's Company ended, they did the same another pilot called Three's a Crowd where Jack, you know, he's with a girlfriend and they, there's this meddling father and he's running his restaurant. Right. So that's the show that happened after Three's Company ended. Also bombed. 
Well, in the British show, the British version of that is called Robin's Nest. It's the exact same plot. And that show was also more successful yeah. than the American version. So I should mention that. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the show was popular from the get-go. Uh, the, the cast became superstars, um, as particularly Susan and Summers. Uh, she was very uh, popular and she was very smart. She uh, actually um, got uh, the agent who worked with uh, Farrah Fawcett because she realized that Farrah Fawcett had become a sexual icon of the late 70s and she was trying to do the same thing. So she was doing, you know, and she started doing these Vegas shows and she started expanding her career and she was on the covers of many magazines, right? Um, can, can you imagine, though, the actresses that got knocked out of the pilot how they like they, they got Pete oh, busted. Yeah. They were the Pete best right? of, like, of Three's Company for sure because the show yeah. was so massive and you know it went on for so yeah. long. Like I, I always think about the woman who was in like one of the pilots that aired and then they get the call. Oh yeah, you're gone. We're replacing you, and then your replacement goes on to be this huge uh, star. That's got, and I don't know. I've never heard of those other actresses. Maybe they never worked again. It, it, it's it's pretty sad in a way. Right, right. right. So the early show had that British edginess because British TV was always a little more daring in, in, in that sense. And that's one of the reasons why I think American writers look to Britain for what ideas would play in the future. And it started out as a very basic comedy and was more around these misunderstandings and everything was sexual around season three, it started to become more of a farce. And this was because they brought in a director named Dave Powers, who really wanted to focus on John Ritter's physical comedy, as well as Chrissy's kind of daffy ditzy comedy. So it became more goofy as it went on. Now, since the show had such high ratings and since it was a big thing and Suzanne Summers was uh, trying to pursue her career and make herself bigger. Um, she, uh, you know, married this, I forget his name. She has a husband, she's still married to him now, as far as I know. And Alan yeah, something, and he, like, he kind of became her yeah. advocate after, you know, she ditched the, the Farrah Fawcett uh, agent. He became her advocate and they really tried to push for more money for her, her episode and also points on the show, percentage points uh, based on advertising revenue. And um, the thing is, is I don't think there's anything wrong with doing this, but the way she did it was really pushy. And she would do things like when she didn't get her way, she would start to, uh, you know, feign illness and become absent from the show. And this really pissed off her co-stars, right? John Ritter made right. more money than the other two women, but he was really the star. Um, so you can look at it as kind of sexist, but you can also look at it as, well, does she really deserve more money than the other two? And and there was this whole thing where you know, Joyce DeWitt still, as far as I know to this day, still does not like Suzanne Somers for, because of this, because she never, um, she kind of seemed to go behind the two characters back to try to get more money for herself, even though she was, she would later say, oh, I wanted all of us to get more money, right? So when this started happening, uh, they started writing around her and they had this whole weird plot device where Chrissy would be, uh, she, the other characters Actors didn't even want to be around her, right? So they had this weird device where she would do these phone calls. She would be, uh, you know, there's some pretext of her taking care of her mother or something or going having to live with her father. So she would do these weird phone calls at the beginning of the show. And that's when they brought in Cindy Snow. That's when they brought in Jenny Lee Harrison, right? Um, so, and that didn't really work out very well either because Jenny Lee Harrison, she was just a Rams cheerleader. She was very inexperienced comedian. I think her 
she does okay. She, her, character, her gimmick with her is she's kind of a klutz. But the sexual innuendo stuff didn't really work with her so much. So that's when they brought in um, Priscilla Barnes, who, interestingly enough, Priscilla Barnes is so different than Suzanne Summers. She's kind of another Janet. She's not really a ditch. She's actually a smart character. And so it was kind of a weird dynamic there where it was the comedy was completely focused then on John Ritter. Um, obviously, the right. other two actresses are pretty good comedians, and they did some funny stuff. But I would say most of the humor was was centered on John Ritter and not as much on uh, John and Chrissy. Um, and the ratings went down, of course. Janet, Janet, yeah, and Janet Chrissy. and Chrissy. Sorry. Um, yeah. uh, the ratings did take a dive when this happened. They kind of came back up a little bit with when Priscilla Barnes came back, but then. They took another nosedive. I think people were fi finally tired of the formula. At the end of season six, Lucille Ball, who was a huge fan of the show, we heard her at the beginning of the episode, uh, hosted this uh, clip show. And she basically, you know, it was one of these clip shows they used to do all the time. They don't really do those anymore, I don't think, because TV has become so serialized, it doesn't really make sense. Um, but they did this clip show. It was like a two-hour clip show or, or an hour-long clip show and she basically came out and said she liked the show because it was not political it was not uh you know about anything really it was just comedy and i think at this time no no very special episodes it was all just yeah farce, yeah it was just yeah. farce there you know and and at the beginning i think there was an edginess to it because of all the sexual innuendo and because of the gay character etc or the pseudo gay character but after at this point it had just become a farce right so yeah, let's talk about, um, you wanted to talk about a, a couple of notable things throughout the history too, right? Um, yeah, so, you know, we could, <laughs> we could talk more about this a little bit later as well, but I just want to point out that there's some uh, very famous sort of incidents that have happened with, with the show that are part of its lore. One of them was that Jack Tripper character showed his balls on national TV. <laughs> now, this sounds completely, <laughs> completely, completely ridiculous like, and some kind of like, you know, made up thing. But it actually happened. There, there was a scene and I don't remember the exact episode. I think it's in uh, season season two. I'll put it I'll put it in the show notes. But where he's wearing kind of boxer shorts and he's, you know, moving his legs around and stuff like that. And there's a brief moment where you can kind of see his, uh, you can kind of see his balls on the show. And it was broadcast live, or, you know, when the episode aired, it was rebroadcast in syndication. Yeah, like Nick at Night. Multiple, multiple Nick times. Nick at Night in the early 2000s. That's when somebody actually noticed it. No one had noticed it before. Somebody finally yeah. noticed it. Yeah, somebody finally noticed it and it became kind of this underground thing. And for a while, they were denying it. And, you know, they say, no, no, it didn't happen. It's like one of those famous other stories. Like there's one about the newlywed game I won't go into on this particular episode uh, that is very famous. <laughs> but the, the <laughs> that's for another time. The, the, uh, um, the, the one I'm talking about, Slip, is, you know, where's the strangest oh, yeah. place you made ever made yeah. love with the question yeah. on the newlywed game, <laughs> um, which actually did happen. Uh, but at, at any rate, uh, this was, it was true. It did happen. A viewer found it and they denied it for a while. And then eventually they, they edited it out of syndication and somebody asked John Ritter about it and he didn't really know it had happened. And then he saw it and he was on a talk show. I think it was on like Jimmy Fallon or, or one of those shows. And somebody asked him about it and he had a quip uh, about it. He's like, oh yeah. He asked them to keep both versions 
um, in syndication because sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. With his, with <laughs> That's pretty crew, funny. Which is a reference to a, a candy commercial from that era as well. So you, anyway, you know, there's another, there's happen. another, there's another uh, sort of wardrobe malfunction too. That's a little not as notable or not as uh, insane as that. But there is one episode where, uh, for some reason, there's this tossle on this couch with Mr. Furley and and Terry is like, uh, I, I guess she's like reaching for his hair and she sort of almost pulled off his wig. So you can see because Don Knotts, that's obviously not his hair, uh, Mr. Furley's insane hair. Um, so that was another right. kind of gaffe uh, that had happened. But you can't, you could barely see it, really. It's nothing like the the testicles, obviously. And I'll and, but that was another one. Yeah. So at any rate, just a little more flavor as it were uh, for the show. And, and uh, you know, if you're so inclined, you can look in the show notes and you'll see the link for it. And there's a whole, there's web pages about it where people are like blowing up the grainy videos or Bruder style to kind of show it. You don't really get to see that much, but it's clear that it was something they didn't intend to actually be on there. Is it in, you know, standard definition before high definition is a little less obvious and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was an innocent mistake, but funny, uh, nevertheless. So, okay, so let's transition now and talk about our personal histories with the show a little bit. Um, I'll go first here because uh, I have the mic. Basically, as I was saying before, if you grew up in the 1970s or were already there, the show was just ubiquitous. Um, it was a very as a top rated show, as you mentioned, Slip. It was everywhere. I remember um, in in terms of being in syndication, even while it was still being aired live in the later years, it was early episodes, I think, were in syndication. It was shown all the time in Southern California where we lived. I just remember watching it almost daily. One thing I do want to mention, and, and it's maybe weird to younger people watching or listening to this um, episode, which is. Now, in the 1970s, compared to now, where there's 8 trillion channels and nobody really watches the same thing, we have this segment, uh, segmentation and this, um, you know, finely tuned, everybody has their own interests and likes and playlists and nobody's watching necessarily the same thing outside of uh, big shows. Right. Um, everybody of our generation watched the same shows or just weren't that many. There were three major networks. Pretty much all the kids that I knew of that era watched Three's Company. They watched Love Boat. They watched Fantasy Island. They watched stuff like Heart to Heart, The Six Million Dollar Man, and Wonder Woman, and all these things. Like we all had a similar cultural experience when it came to TV, at least at that time, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this was just a, the show was just a constant part of my childhood. I knew even as a small kid that it was supposed to be titillating to a degree. Um, the sexual innuendos, I didn't necessarily get, obviously, being a, you know, six, seven, eight years old or whatever it was. But I kind of understood that it was supposed to be something salacious and, you know, the, uh, the studio audience with their, you know, whooping and, you know, cackling and all that. It's pretty clear kids are smart in that way, can pick up on something that they're not supposed to be understanding, that it's something they shouldn't understand, something they want to understand and all that and capitalizing on that. Um, I definitely remember being a fan of John Ritter. I thought he was really funny. I thought that he was talented and I liked watching him and he was kind of a compelling character and, and actor to, to watch into physical comedy was something I was a fan of. 
I was then and still am very much a Three Stooges diehard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that kind of that that kind of broad physical slapstick comedy was something that I that just resonated with me. Um, and he was very much doing that in pretty much every episode, and I like that. In later years, I I think that you know I still liked him. I, I think he's a very talented guy, even when he wasn't doing the falling over backwards physical um, kind of comedy. He had like another show that I really liked in the '90s, and I'm sure we'll do an episode on news radio. He had a small bit part on that as a psychologist, and he was really funny on that. And another movie that he was in, he's in a lot of stuff, obviously, and you'll talk about some of those. But one movie he's in that didn't get a lot of play, but he's great in it was Bad Santa. And if you've never seen that, he, he has. A, he, I think he plays like the manager of the of the store in the mall where they're trying to rip off and he, he's just it's subtle but he's really really funny in it and he's just a talented guy that obviously died way too yeah. young so one last other thing from a personal history that I will point out is um in the mid 80s I want to say maybe late 80s I don't remember the exact year um one of my uh you know junior high and high school friends uh Craig uh college friend too, that slip nose, uh, worked on, he was, uh, his, his uh, father is kind of in the, in the uh, television business and, and he was a writer and he got work to work on a couple shows and he uh, worked on a movie actually called Stepfather 3 that starred Priscilla Barnes. Wow, there's a Stepfather and he was 3. Always, I, I love the step, there's a the Stepfather first Stepfather 3. is great with Terry O'Quinn. That's a great film. I didn't realize that it had created, you know, I knew there was a sequel. I didn't know there was a three. That's crazy. Yeah. There, there, there was a yeah. third, and Priscilla Barnes is one of the stars of it. And he was forever telling me stories about her on the set. She seemed to be kind of an affected sort and would like have this whole ritual before every scene where she would kind of like scream and shout and, you know, work wow. herself up into some kind of frenzy that he was saying that everyone was just like thought was hilarious and, and crazy. And she, seemed to just be one of those kind of crazy actress types and just nobody really paid much attention to it, but he was forever telling me stories about her on the set because he knew that I was such a fan of, uh, of three's company and I just shaking my head about. So, so I think, anyway, I think what you're getting that, at is uh, I, I pretty much need to watch stepfather three. I think I'm going to do it. I think it, you man. do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, if you really want stories live from the set, uh, contact uh, Craig, and he can he can tell you about everything he can recall after all these years. So, anyway, I will turn it over to you for your personal history here. Yeah, yeah, it's similar. Um, I mean, obviously, um, you know, I watched the show when it was on, but also in syndication uh, because it was syndicated, uh, you know, in the '80s, and when I was probably more apt to watch something like this. Uh, you know, thinking back, I was trying to think, was I really a big fan of the show? It seemed like I always was watching it, but I would call myself kind of passive with television. I just kind of watched whatever my parents watched or watched what was on for the most part. There were a few shows I loved um, that I was an active fan of. I would say one of them was What's Happening, which was another show around the time, released around the time that was, I think was also a mid-season replacement that was also really successful. Um, I liked that a lot. I loved Bosom Buddies, which came later, which you know, is based on some like it hot, but I also think it's really influenced by Three's Company a lot. Um, I, I love both those I shows I would say too. my favorite them. show, my favorite yeah. comedy at the time that I was actually really someone I would never miss and I loved and was probably my favorite show was WKRP in Cincinnati. 
um, and that was around this right. time too, um, that's one we should probably revisit because I'm wondering if it still holds up. Absolutely. Because to me, it was it was about music, and I was much more into music than TV. Um, so it kind of blended those two things. But I I enjoyed Three's Company, and I remembered um, a few. Uh, you know, my mom was hugely into John Ritter. She just loved John Ritter. Um, and I remember I actually had this chemistry teacher in 10th grade who was fucking Jack Tripper fashion. Totally. He had these fucking Terry cloth shirts, you know, the Britannia shirts that were probably like six years old at the time. I mean, this is like what, 85, 86. Um, and I remember we had an open house and my mom went to, and he kind of had that Jack Tripper hair and he kind of looked like him. His name was Mr. Shenton, I think. Um, and I remember my mom went to an open house and she was talking about, oh, your chemistry teacher is such a dreamboat. And I'm like, oh, that's that John Ritter <laughs> shit coming through. Man. Um, yeah. But I remember a few episodes from the time, you know, when I was going to revisit it now, I'm like, well, let's see if those episodes still hold up, because I remembered a few being really memorable to me. One was called Up in the Air, which I'll talk about more in my evaluation, which was a this happened it was one of the later episodes. I seem to remember more of the later episodes than the earlier ones, you know, in particular. Um, up in the air is obviously memorable because it has this incredible comedic physical comedic montage that's straight out of Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd, where the plot is essentially Jack, um, is afraid to fly. Janet wants, uh, to fly, uh, wants him to accompany her to a party that her boss is giving or one of her, I guess it's her boss, a flower shop, but he's got this Island, you know, so I don't know what kind of flower, you know, <laughs> Mr. Empire Rock. this guy had. And interestingly enough, that yeah. boss is played by Barry Williams of Greg Brady, Frank. Awesome. So, um, but the, 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 you know, the plot is basically, she wants to, you know, he said, show up with a date. So she wants to show up with a date who she doesn't really like just a friend. So she tries, she gets Jack to accompany her. They're going to fly on this prop plane. He's deathly afraid of flying. So he, Larry gives him some tranquilizers and the trank and Terry said, you know, nurse says, you know, you shouldn't take these. You don't know how you're going to react. Right. So he takes the tranquilizers and he's really acting goofy and loopy. And then they say, well, you shouldn't drink anything at the party. Well, he ends up drinking this, you know, alcoholic beverage and just goes apeshit and starts dancing all around. He pulls off a guy's wig. He's, you know, dancing with the lamp. He he touches the lamp or kisses the lamp and it goes on like these little magic kind of silent film moments. And it's just a fucking tour de force. You know, it's so funny. And watching it now, I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but um, it, it I think it still holds up. But there, there's another one. I, I, I'm i wondering, though, if I sorry, I, I'm wondering, though, if Larry having tranquilizers is a little Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's another thing we could talk about, whether Larry's character holds up, because he does some pretty terrible things <laughs> using fake names oh, and get getting girls pregnant and blaming Jack and, yeah. you know, uh, crazy uh, kind of Me Too era uh, foy pause, uh, faux pas, I guess. Um, so. The other episode I remembered is not that remarkable, but it, it was funny at the time where this is another season six episode where Jack is working for Mr. Angelino. This is the kind of goofy boss he has uh, at, at this restaurant. And this mobster comes in. The mobster played very broadly, very over the top by actor Terry Kaiser, who would later play the corpse in Weekend at Bernie's. He'd play Bernie. Um, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, the basic plot of that is that you know, Felipe is trying to sabotage the meal. So he keeps adding more hot pepper to the pasta. And of course, the more hot pepper he adds, 
uh, you know, the more that this mafia guy likes it and his face is, you know, he's making all these expressions of, you know, it's really stupid. Um, but I remember laughing at it as a kid, you know. So as far as John Ritter goes, yeah, I was a huge fan of him. Um, and I even like the fucking movie Blake Edwards Skin Deep. I think I don't know if it still holds up. It's one that I want to revisit because I remember watching that. I was a huge bomb. It was one of Blake Edwards's later films, like late 80s. Um, but that's the one with the school in the dark, dark condoms. condoms right? And I remember loving that <laughs> yeah. fucking movie, you know, and, and thinking how funny it was and not understanding why people didn't think it was good. Um, I think I saw it at the dollar theater. You know, they had those dollar theaters yeah. in the late eighties and yeah, it was, it was a surprise how much I enjoyed it. Um, and then of course, you know, John Ritter did a few other things he did. Uh, he was working on a pretty successful sitcom when he died, which was called eight simple rules, uh, to date my daughter or whatever it was. Um, I never watched that sitcom, but, um, you know, of course he died really young. He died around age 50. Um, of this thing called an aortic dissection. Um, so he he was on the show's set and he started vomiting, he started having chest pains and they took him to the hospital and they immediately started treating him for a heart attack because the symptoms are so similar. Um, he ended up dying and his wife, Amy Yazbek, you know, she's, he met her on the set of Problem Child, which is another series of movies he did. Um, and she basically uh, sued the hospital for millions of dollars because of the misdiagnosis and it ended up creating this whole protocol that doctors could use called Ritter's rules, right? Because if you're looking at someone with the aortic dissection, you know, all the symptoms that like echocardiogram and stuff looks fine. So you're, you're not going to notice. So you have to do these other checks and she ended up calling it Ritter's rules and it became this new protocol named after John Ritter in his memory. So I think it's pretty wow, cool. Didn't know yeah, that. When Very I was in my, um, yeah. you know, a couple of years ago, I had this instance where, um, you know, I felt, dizzy you know my vision was blurring i kind of fell off balance and i thought oh no i'm having a stroke you know i mean i'm pretty healthy but a male in their 50s you never fucking know right so i ended right. up going it was at work i was probably just stressed out we might have had some migraine i had some um visual floaters in my eyes too so it might have been like a migraine kind of thing but i ended up going to the hospital and i totally thought about these Ritter's rules i thought you know my ekg is fine but they need to do this other i i even mentioned it to them uh, it turned out I was fine. You know, part of it, I think, was that Luke Perry, actor Luke Perry, had just died of a stroke. And he looked pretty fucking healthy yep. to me. You know, so I was like, and even John Singleton, the director, had just died. So I was went through this period where I was really hyp hypochondriac and paranoid. You know, I should also mention my dad had a stroke. You know, of course, he was, you know, drinking so much alcohol at the time that, you know, no wonder. But um yeah, that's kind of a personal story that that I relate to John Ritter a lot in that sense. And it's really tragic that we lost him so young. That's basically it for me yeah. as far as my history of the show goes. Yeah, no, I I uh, remember when John Ritter died and I was, I was really bummed out about it. I, you know, thinking about, wow, you know, I really liked him. He seemed like a good yeah, guy. Yeah, that's the other thing. Too. You know, you watch these, like, I, of course, in preparation for this, I watched the E! True Hollywood Story documentary and he just seems like a good, decent guy, you know? Yeah. Everyone yeah. liked him. No one really had bad things to say about him. Obviously, one thing we didn't talk about is his father was actually a very famous oh, yeah. Tex Ritter. Uh, musician, yeah. right? And uh, Tex Ritter, right? And there's uh, references to Tex Ritter lines and like movies he was in or things that he was in and th throughout Three's Company, little Easter Oh, I didn't know that. That they, uh, yeah. Well, obviously, um, that's my I, I pseudonym for today is Austin Tripper. That's when Jack played his own twin brother so he could date a woman and not you know, be outed as not gay. Um, 
you right. know, that probably was influenced by his dad a bit. A little bit. Yep. Um, okay. So let's talk about our evaluations here and, and we'll get into to some of these uh, uh, stories. So um, overall, look, as much as I like the show as a kid and obviously appreciate John Ritter's talents and somewhat, you know, to be honest, the jiggly nature of the show, even as a little kid was, was sort of compelling to me, I have to say. Yeah, um, we were just at the right I age think, if you were watching in syndication for that, you know, yeah, puberty. Definitely. The of puberty. Definitely. And I, I was never really into Suzanne Summers. I, I was actually kind of more into Janet, uh, definitely more into the brunettes of that era. So the Linda Carvers oh, yeah. and the Jacqueline Smiths were definitely important parts of my uh, early uh, life. It's funny, there. Janet, um, like, the, you know, she kind of, lo her look changed. You know, I noticed while watching some of the episodes, it's like, in the 70s, she kind of has this little curly fro and she's wearing like these little skimpy yeah. short shorts and uh, these little jerseys. Like she has the zero, the jersey with the number zero on it that she's always wearing. That's yeah. kind of a 90. <laughs> and then weird. and then in the eight, 80s, it's just like, boom, Pat Benatar. You know, she's got the total Pat Benatar <laughs> hairdo. And is wearing more like eyes on kind of things. And, you know, it's kind of funny how that yeah. changed. Very, very radically, I think, in the early 80s as um, well there. But um, anyway, I, I do think that there's a nostalgia appeal to this show. Obviously, we spent a lot of time looking at it and reexamining it. Um, I doubt that um, younger generations who didn't experience that, oh, yes, they might have watched it Nick, on Nick at Night or seen it in syndication. But I think outside of the context of the late 70s, early 80s, it's probably not going to be as interesting to people. I think the the sexual norm um, asp uh, pushing those boundaries aspects of the show is probably a little harder to appreciate in retrospective um, because today TV so just aggressively sexual. You know, you have naked characters and just like, you know, the line between broadcast TV and cable or streaming on Netflix and stuff like that is, is becoming blurred. And obviously, when it's not on broadcast TV, people get away right. with um, yeah, that's a good you know, point. showing a lot more explicit, uh, you know, content. So you look back at it, and, and all of these sort of innuendo things were or norm uh, boundary pushing that we were talking about. It seems very dated and really not that interesting um, in the modern uh, context. the The show itself really is kind of cringeworthy. There, there's there's some funny things about it. Um, that you can appreciate. And there's definitely some plots that were interesting or some funny comedic moments, like the episode you were talking about, about the plane and right. Jack, uh, you know, being doped out on, on quaaludes or whatever. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it, it's pretty, the show's not really a great, a great show. Um, there are, uh, you know, a lot of gay jokes on there about Jack, um, you know, being kind of, you know, Tinkerbell, like Mr. Roper calls him Tinkerbell a lot. There's a lot of like kind of the limp-wristed, you know, signaling. And Jack plays it up for comedic effects. It was treated pretty gently. And, you know, Jack would go into his gay character sort of when he needed to and didn't seem to really be bothered by it, um, except when it interfered with his dating life. And then he would take aims to to get around that. But it was, it was treated in a pretty benign way. But it was still a little kind of cringeworthy when you look at it now. Yeah, it's um, like fucking step the, and fetch it for gay people. You know, it's like Amos and yeah, Andy or exactly. something like that, you know? 
It's it's ridiculed, it, really. It is. It is ridiculed, and and it's and it's kind of played out too much in, in right. the show. One of the things that I, you know, I was making my poor wife watch some of these episodes. <laughs> Me and she too, watched, dude. watched it growing up too. She was laughing yeah. at first, but after a while, she's like, "Dude, you know, put on your fucking headphones. Let's go. You can't. You can't yeah, watch this I got anymore." This, yeah. I got the same thing. And, you know, the, the thing that we were talking about was the fact of as progressive as it was for women's sexuality. So it, in the sense that all of the characters on the on the show, all of the, the roommates were presumed to be they're all single. They're all dating. They're all presumed to be having sex. Um, even the women. It wasn't just right. the men. And there's a lot of references to it where they're arguing about who gets the apartment and you need to stay away because I have a date coming over, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the women on the show were, were part of that, too. But there is this whole weird subtext that was the um, plot of a lot of shows where either like the landlord in this case, right, the basic conceit of the show was like, we can't have a single man living with two single right. women, women because chaos might happen. Never mind the fact that the women probably are fully capable of deciding what they're going to do and not going to do and all that. So that you had this sort of guardian aspect uh, there, but the, the, the plots of the shows were like never ending. Never, like there was one where there was a jealous brother um, where uh, there's this one episode where Jack, uh, where Chrissy and Janet joined the gym and the guy who ran the gym was this muscle head dude. And his sister worked at the gym, too, Then, and Janet and Chrissy were friends with, his super attractive uh, brunette that was into Jack and wanted to date Jack. And the brother was like, you can't date my younger sister. And they even made a joke about it. She's like, this woman was 26 years old, and he had to go and beat up dudes who wanted to date his 26-year-old right. sister. She wasn't 16. She was a grown-ass right, woman, right. right? So th there was, like, all of these, like, weird things around that, um, th which when you look in retrospect, it just seems kind of, kind of weird. Um, there's one uh, episode, season two, episode 21 called Will the Real Jack Tripper Please Stand Up? I want to talk about this and I want to talk about the character of Larry Dallas, <laughs> who, again, as we mentioned, was Jack's best friend and up, an upstairs neighbor. And the plot of this show is, is really actually twisted. So, Larry had a habit of lying to the women that he was pursuing. Um, he had a never-ending string of pseudonyms. He would lie about his profession, airline pilot, doctor, all the usual stuff. Um, he, the way the guy dressed, you know, was kind of like a creepy lounge lizard type with the exposed chest hair and, you know, the whole, the whole kind of uh, trope around that, I think. But he would lie to women. And one of the his main go-to uh, pseudonyms was Jack Tripper, supposedly his best friend. So he would constantly date these women, obviously um, doing things in the context of those, uh, you know, relationships as they were, that he didn't want to give his real name. And the name he would often give is Jack Tripper. Well, in this particular episode, he thinks he um, impregnates this woman he's dating. He had told her that his name was Jack Tripper. She tells him that she thinks she's pregnant and his immediate move is to try to ditch her. <laughs> so just think about that yeah. for a second. He tries to basically just say, oh, I got to ghost this, this woman. You know, she's pregnant. This woman thinks that the guy who knocked her up is Jack Tripper. Whole bunch of kind of misdirection comedy uh, ensues where 
She looks up Jack Tripper in the phone book and finds out that where he lives and goes to the real Jack Tripper's apartment, tells uh, Janet and, and Terry at that point that, or no, no, Chrissy at that point, my, my mistake, that, um, you know, she's pregnant and Jack is the one who knocked her up. And Jack actually has a girlfriend on the show at that time. And, you know, they tell Jack that his girlfriend's pregnant, but he thinks the, the, his real girlfriend's pregnant. So he proposes to her. And she accepts and then finds out, oh, no, it's, you know, all the hijinks that that ensue. But the weird the weirdest thing about this episode to me was that at the end of this, the, the sort of denouement of all of this was they find out that Larry lied to a woman about his name and what he did, thought she was pregnant. She turns out, of course, not to be uh, pregnant, um, you know. Apparently, one of the one of the codes of TV at that time from standards and practices, if you know people had un, unmarried people had sex, there has to be con negative consequences that have oh, to be yeah, dealt with, especially if those interesting. Were I didn't even think teenagers. Of that. Right. Teenagers always had to have like negative consequences to having sex, even younger people who are in their late twenties, presumably. But the weird thing about this is Larry basically he lies to some woman about who he is gets her pregnant, tries to ditch this woman who he thinks is pregnant. All this gets wrapped up by the end of the show and, and Janet and Chrissy and Jack are just, oh, Larry, you screw yeah. up. Like, nobody was like, this is a horrible, horrible yeah. guy. he's a sociopath. He's like our friendly neighborhood sociopath. He's a sociopath <laughs> and they're just like, oh, Larry, he's just a scam. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? He's just like this, you know, you know, aggressive sexual predator almost. And he's just, oh, he's, just, you know, Jack's best friend. Oh, Larry... Kind of, you know, I'll get you. But there's no, I just found that incredibly weird. The episode is is actually borderline disturbing <laughs> if you go and watch it. Um, where you just sit there shaking your head. The other, um, and so the Larry character, again, it was this kind of predatory lounge lizard, uh, you know, singles bar denizen type. And just played for laughs again and again and again um, in that he's this aggressive guy which is maybe doesn't hold up very well, right? Um, the other episode I wanted to talk about was actually the very next episode of season two, episode 22. And it was called, uh, you know, a reference to Days of Wine and Roses that I think early 60s Jack Lemmon right. movie about alcoholics. Yeah, that's right. But the, the, the um, it was called Day, Days of uh, Wine and Weed days of or something and like weed, that. Yeah. And days of Beer and Weed, yeah. And the, the plot of this one was really strange as well. So one of the things in there, and I have to give them credit for this for being ahead of the curve, Mr. Roper was making his own That's beer right. in the episode and very proudly doing it, which, you know, prefigured the whole microbrewing revolution. He is even bragging about how good it was, how he's going to sell it to the Regal Beagle, which was, we haven't really talked about yet, is the place where these kids who, you know, kids, right, who are in their mid-20s, late 20s, who never had any money, seemingly had endless dough to spend at this bar. Yeah, we should mention uh, that, the Regal, the Regal Beagle. Beagle. I should have mentioned that in the history because the whole Regal Beagle thing is another thing they got from the British show, right? At On the first episode, right. they're talking about, let's go to the Regal Beagle. It's this English pub. They're sprouting up all over. It's a new trend. And it's obviously, in order to do the scenes that were from the British show, they had to have a pub because in in British comedies, right. there's always a pub, right? The pub is the cornerstone always. of British life. So this was another thing they borrowed. Um, even though uh, there were actually some English pubs and there, you know, I think some of them are still around in Santa Monica. So there, 
it was kind of a thing, but it wasn't like this huge trend. It was like they were just trying to borrow that so they could do the same scenes. Yep. Yeah, and, and these these guys and gals who were very poor, couldn't even make rent, were always at the Regal Beagle buying drinks and stuff like that, which is which is kind of weird. And then not even drinking their drinks. Half the episodes right. are like pouring the drinks on somebody's head or, you know, dodging their beer half empty, which just seems not very realistic in, in my experience. But at any rate, so Mr. Roper's making his own beer, which he's also using uh, Helen's pantyhose to, <laughs> as a strainer, which yeah. which is kind of funny. But the 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 main plot of the show was that uh, Mrs. Roper was taking a flower arranging course and that she was, you know, looking to, you know, enhance the variety of flowers. And apparently out in the back of the apartment building, there was a garden that had been overgrown and, and not cared for. And Mr. Roper basically extorts the, you know, Jack and Janet and Chrissy to go and clean up the garden and I mean, plant it all up all nice by saying, if you don't do it, I'm going to raise your rent that you can't afford, right. which, you know, is a weird It's really thing, weird. Right? And what's like, weird about this scene, too, is there's a similar episode about camping where the sets are so fake. It's such a set. It's such a set. Are. And you get what you get in the gardening scenes is a lot of Jack Tripper stepping into, you know, rakes and things like, you know, there's a lot of physical comedy. S stabbing his toe with right, a with a, right, with a exactly. pitchfork. And, it's yeah. just an excuse. This is, yeah. a, this is really a bizarre episode. There's a lot going on. It's probably one of the most complicated uh, episodes they ever did, really. Yeah. It, and it's weird because they they go, they're extorted into cleaning up this garden. They do, they go and they do it. There's, a, you know, a bunch of pratfalls in the garden, as we were just mentioning. But the, the crux of it is that they find what they think is marijuana in the growing wild in the garden. They mistakenly give it to Mrs. Roper because she's like, oh, hey, I, I want to, you know, have some interesting flowers for my flower arranging uh, thing. She has, I guess, some flower arranging competition. Uh, competitions were a, a very big part of things in the 70s, I guess. But they, um, you know, give her some mistakenly. She has it in her uh, flower arrangement. And then they find out later that they gave her uh, cannabis because Jack and Chrissy, of course, didn't know it. Even though Janet was there, Janet presumably is the expert on what plan is what, later on identifies mis identifies that what they thought was, was marijuana wasn't, and what they didn't know was marijuana was. Right. But she didn't do that earlier in the episode for some bizarre reason. It doesn't even make sense. The, the crux of it is you know, a whole bunch of other shit happens that I won't go into, but uh, Mrs. Roper has some pot, which she thinks is uh, cannabis in her flower arranging thing. They call Mr. Roper on the phone in an emergency, tell him, and he destroys her flower arranging um, setup. Uh, so before anyone can discover there's there's marijuana and it turns out there wasn't, it was something they thought it was, but mistakenly they did actually find some marijuana. Ha ha ha. There's lots of jokes to, hey, you, how do we get rid of it? Instead of getting rid of it the obvious way, which is just, you know drying it out and rolling it up and smoking it, which I think Larry uh, in the episode wanted them to do and even made some jokes about it. There's a lot of weird things around the weed that was like, oh my God, it was like nuclear waste right. to them, which in the late 70s probably wouldn't be the case. You know, like nobody would really care that much, even go to the police station about it. Just a really, really bizarre episode. Um, a couple other things in, in, in my part here, which is they had one bathroom in this apartment that was sort of out in the, um, that was out in the, um, you know, main living room. And all three of them were sharing this bathroom in this apartment. 
that's kind of weird, right, right? right? Like Janet and Chrissy having to smell Jack's shits, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like nobody talked about that. The fact that the bathroom was like right out where they were watching TV, that is a weird thing. Like most apartments that I've lived in with roommates, you know, where the bathroom was and who was in it and what you were doing in the bathroom was much more of a topic of discussion. Um, right. Obviously with a lot of implications there. Anyway, the the other thing about Mr. Roper I, I want to mention is uh, he was kind of a perv too. Um, he, in an early opening montage, they show him with uh, binoculars. Oh. <laughs> and there's even one episode, there's yeah. even one episode where he's caught ogling maybe it was Chrissy or somebody else who some woman who is uh sunbathing or sunbathing nude or something like that and he's caught um being a bit of a peeping tom and they're even I think referring to it in the opening uh, montage he is a little bit of a perv he's not interested in his wife at all but he there's all sorts of jokes about him um you know being interested in women on the beach or women you know around the apartment complex the other last thing I want to mention about him is the Mr. Roper, Stanley Roper, was played by Norman Fell, who was a character actor, uh, you know, who's pretty well known in the 60s. He's actually in one of my favorite movies from the 60s. And, you know, right. Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven. 11. Yeah. yeah, he's in that. But the but the great um, and I'm very much not a fan of the remakes, but that's a di different topic for a different yeah. time. Um, you can't replace Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. I mean, come on. And Sammy Davis. Just yeah, it's don't weird though. Bother. I actually think I would argue that the the remake is kind of a different thing and it's a tighter film. Like the, the original Ocean's Eleven takes forever to get going. I mean, it's kind of slow, but the dialogue and the acting just make up for it. And the stylist, sty the stylistic uh, stuff in Ocean, the original Ocean's Eleven is just so much. You just can't, you can't reproduce that stuff. Um, that's a future yeah. episode, so we'll, we'll yeah. save that. Um, anyway, Mr. Roper character would get these digs in at Helen, mostly, his wife. And then he would he would kind of break the fourth wall and turn to the camera and mug for the camera and just kind of give this toothy grin that acknowledging that, you know, he sort of got one over on, on Helen. And they stopped doing that at some point. But I actually think it's one of the most endearing things about the show, and, and my wife would also agree with that. What really thinks his grin is is very charming. I think it's funny, uh, you know. And, and again, it's sort of the typical sitcom. I got a good zinger in on the old. It's crazy kind of too thing, because but, you know he had never had any comedy experience, but I think he's one of the best comedic actors the show had. You know, he's he's agreed. actually a yeah. lot of his comic timing and the way he delivers the lines. He's just he's a natural. It's kind of surprising that he had never had any experience before the show. I think he was just a talented very, actor. Very much, I, yeah. I mean, really never got, you know, top billing or anything like that. But he was really, I think, a big part of the early success of that show. Definitely, definitely no doubt. A, one of my favorite uh, characters. I mean, and, you know, he, you know, played on the supposed uh, Jack Tripper homosexuality thing you know, doing a lot of the Tinkerbell stuff, but, you know, it is what it is. At the end of this, though, wrapping up here, I'm short on this show, as painful as it is. I don't know why it's painful, because I didn't really have, like, I don't have necessarily, like, oh, my God, this is my favorite show. There's nothing that great about it other than, you know, some of the John Ritter comedic 
moments and talents that he had. But I have very fond memories of it. I think it's just really, for me, a bit of a nostalgia play. Every time it would come on or every time I'd see a clip from it, I would sit there and watch it and be amused by it. But I can't really sit here and pretend that future generations are really going to like it or appreciate it. I think it is a nostalgia play for our generation in particular, and maybe for people plus or minus five or six years around you know uh, us. But I think in the future, this is not really going to hold up. Um, maybe there's some John Ritter fans out there who will like it, but I just can't believe that there will be that many people, maybe with the exception of the folks behind the Kids in 201 blog, which I will uh, let you talk about here and turn it over to you in in a second. But overall, I think I'm short. So that's where I'm going to come down. So what's your evaluation? Okay, so my evaluation, let me just start off with what's good about the show. Um, For one thing, I just want to talk a little bit about the fact that it's old, right? Obviously, we talked about some of the comedy at the time just doesn't play today. And that just happens all the time, right? There's uh, you know, even now we're talking about Eddie Murphy delirious as a child. This was the funniest thing I had ever seen. Um, but now because of all the gay yep. stuff in there and the, and, and the homophobic jokes, it, it doesn't play so well. You know, it can be cringy, right? Um, I still think it has its merits. I think Eddie Murphy is a comedic genius, but there is comedy that just doesn't stand the test of time because of changing social values. Um, it's the fart game, son. You'll play right, it too. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think there's some really old stuff that still, or maybe it's just not funny because it's not edgy enough or it's corny. You know, a lot, I think of like Sid Caesar and stuff in, in the fifties, you know, it's, it has its charm, but it's just not funny to me, you know, but then there's other right. stuff that I think is always funny. Like I think who's on first Abbott and Costello will always be funny. Like, I think it's brilliant. I think it's uh, just the word play. It's timeless, right? And then I think, uh, you know, I, me and my wife used to go to this uh, silent film festival every year. We kind of stopped going because it's just you're sitting in a theater for hours. The older you get, you just don't want to fucking do that. You know, it's like you're just worn out and they don't give you enough time to get food and you're you know worried about your seat. But I love silent film and I especially love silent comedy like Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd. And I remember watching those movies in the silent uh, film festival and they killed you know, I mean, people were just dying. They're still funny, right? And then I think about Singing in the Rain. This is my favorite musical of all time. It's also a comedy. I think it's such a good comedy that if you took the musical aspects out of it, it would still be a great film. They actually remade it, in a sense, with the artist, right? The artist came out in the early, I think it was 2011, Best Picture. Um, that movie is just a carbon copy of Singing in the Rain's plot. Um, and I still think it's a you know, it still holds up today. I showed my um, my nieces who are very into musical theater, like a lot of kids, what with Hamilton and all this. Um, and we watched that and they laughed. They laughed at the jokes. And it's not like they're laughing at it either. They're laughing with it because it's that clever. The writing is that good. So I do think some old stuff holds up. Um, so good things about the show, mainly John Ritter. I, I think John Ritter is the best thing about the show. As I mentioned in my description of Up in the Air, He has this incredible kind of old-fashioned physical comedy routine he does while on the tranquilizers and alcohol. It's kind of a physical comedy tour de force. Um, It reminds me of Donald O'Connor's impressive uh, make him laugh bit in Singing in the Rain. That's the one where he runs up a wall. It's it's if you watch that thing, it'll blow your mind. I mean, that someone could physically do this. And it's also super funny to this day. Um, And there's also... um, 
this great episode in season six. Again, season six, for some reason, that's the one that really comes back to me. Uh, it's called And Now Here's Jack, and it's when Jack is asked by Mr. Angelino to represent his restaurant on one of these morning talk shows, like USA Today kind of show. And he does this whole routine, but he's afraid of public speaking and he can't remember all his lines. So he play, strategically places notes around the set. He has Janet and Chrissy as his assistants. And of course, the director, before he goes on, ends up changing the set at the last minute. And so he ends up reading the wrong stuff. And he's like, you know, it's just all chaos ensues. And it's really funny. I think it still holds up. Um, another notable episode is in season five. Uh, this is called Upstairs, Downstairs, Downstairs. This is when Jack kind of gets himself into a bind by kind of double booking dates, but also promising Chrissy and Janet that they will he will make dinner for them. So he's basically relocated them down into Mr. Furley's apartment. He's got a date in his apartment, and then he's borrowing Larry's apartment. Larry is uh, away. He's borrowing his apartment for another date, and he's trying to scramble to find food in the refrigerator to prepare three meals. You know, he starts out with this really fancy dinner for Janet and Chrissy, lamb chops and, you know, some French thing. And then it eventually ends up, he's serving hot dogs to one of his dates, you know, and it's, it's really funny. He's running up and down the stairs and it's, I think it still holds up. Of course, how is this physical comedy going to hold up now? I mean, physical comedy is still a thing, but physical comedy of today is like Eric Andre, you know, which is insane and Jack jackass. Right. I mean, it's, it's extreme, you know, so these old kind of fashion, like I'm going to dance with the lamppost, you know, I'm not sure how well that's going to hold up for people. Right. I think it's timeless and charming and and I would argue it does hold up. But again, I see that comedy gets more edgy and this stuff might just be old hokey shit to people now, you know? Um, yeah. The other good thing I think is Suzanne Summers. I think when Suzanne Summers started on the show, she had no experience acting at all, almost at all. Um, and she it's interesting the way her character changed. You know, in the early show, she's more naive. She's not a ditz, really. She's not the smart one. Janet is obviously the smart one, but she's kind of a little airheaded and a little naive, but she's not this incredible ditz that she would later become. I mean, she, um, she basically even looks different. Like in her early episode, she's kind of a, you know, just a regular blonde. And then her hair is almost white. Uh, you know, it's almost like they yeah. wanted to make her even a blonder or, or dumber or, you know, by making her that. And she just yeah. has this goofy expression and every line is just like a comedic line. But I think she did it well. You know, she did. She she's funny. Uh, there's one episode with her that's really good called The Bake Off. This is where Jack is entering a moose pie into a competition and Chrissy eats part of it. And then they get it ended up getting another moose pie to substitute for. It. And of course, to get rid of the first one, she just eats the whole thing. And it's like, her expressions while doing it are pretty funny. I think it still holds up. I mean, even my wife said as a kid, you know, she basically spit out her Coke, you know, while she was watching this episode. It was so funny to her. And of course, it ends in yeah. a pie fight, which I think are almost never funny. You know, that's such an old fashioned, like the Brady Bunch did that too, right? These huge pie fights, and it's such an old fashioned thing. Um, but I do think her acting is pretty good. I think Joyce DeWitt is good as a, more of the straight man, straight woman. Um, you know, she's charming. They have the characters have really good chemistry with each other in the in the early episodes. Um, and of course, you mentioned Norman Fell. I think he's one of the best things, even though I think the kind of Helen is horny and Norman Fell is indifferent to hostile gets really old real fast, especially if you're watching these episodes in a row. Um, that's one thing we didn't do back in the day, right? We didn't have the ability to binge watch something. Even when VHS yeah. came out, I don't think people were buying Three's Company until maybe DVDs came out. 
Um, but probably the right. Case, but yes. then, you know, now you have it on streaming, you have it on Pluto, you know, and these other platforms, YouTube, and you could just watch them in a row. And when you're watching these in a row, especially researching for a show like we did, it gets really old really fast. Like, and I think the way people watch TV now, streaming, that's going to be, you know, kind of a no-go maybe for them. I'll talk a little bit more about that after I get done with the, when I talk about the bad things or maybe the end, you know, some of the things that I think are kind of why I might tend towards more of a neutral rating. Uh but uh, obviously Don Knotts, I've always loved Don Knotts as a kid. I remember the, you know, Hot Lead, uh, Cold Feet, you know, these movies, The Ghost of Mr. Chicken. We had this a show in L.A. called Family Film Festival hosted by Tom Patton. Tom Hatton. I, I was researching that, trying to find film, Family Film Festival clips to show my wife because this was such a big part of my childhood, watching the Family Film Festival. Mine yeah. too. And yeah. I remember um, he would show those, like, Ghost of Mr. Chicken. I always thought Don Knotts is just a goofy, physically funny guy. And I think it still holds up. And we have to talk a little bit about Mr. Furley's wardrobe because that isn't, I still think that shit is amazing. Like they took the leisure suit thing to levels of surreality. I mean, it is insane. I remember there's one episode I was watching. He's wearing the shirt with these black shirt with these two giant colorful flowers on it with this, um, you know, scarf in the middle. And it's just like an ascot, yeah, like an ascot yeah, yeah. but it's like hanging down in the middle. And, you know, he's got these shirts that look like they could be bath towels, you know, or curtains. Yeah. They lo- it looks it's, like a wardrobe department just took some curtains and made like a fucking vest out of it. I mean, he takes the leisure suit thing to extremities. And I think that's pretty funny. You know, I think that still kind of holds up. And then his kind of expressions and his weird kind of shaky, googly eyed expressions are funny. I mean, when we were watching this, my wife would you know, she was very anti me watching this with her. Like I said, she got really tired of it really fast, but she would laugh, you know, it would just happen uh, because he's that funny. I just, just think he's naturally funny, even though it's kind of an old fashioned kind of comedy. Okay. So the bad shit, um, again, the plot lines are repeated so much in the show that it's so limited as to what they would do. And you're talking about eight fucking years. Um, and yeah. there's a pretty good uh, um, uh, clip about this from John Ritter. Why don't we play him, play that now? On that eighth season, and I, I've said this before, when uh, Terry, Janet, and Jack are trying to hide a kitty from Mr. Furley, and I remembered in the first season when uh, Chrissy, Janet, and Jack are trying to hide a puppy from Mr. Roper, I went, mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so there you go. It's like they're repeating that a kitten is now the same plot as season one's puppy. So it's that's very indicative of the show. I think there's other episodes where Larry actually gets into trouble in a similar way as he did in the episode you talked about where he's using pseudonyms, right? There's so many yep. repeated plot lines. I think that it gets really old really fast. I also mentioned the Ropers, how their stick didn't work when they actually tried to put it in its own show. Because it's just the same joke over and over again, essentially. So if you're watching this in bits and pieces like we used to watch back in the day where it would just be on in syndication, maybe you watch one a day or you watch, uh, you know, the show, actual show once a week. These things don't really aren't as evident to you. But the way that people watch TV shows now where you can just watch all of them in a row, I think that it doesn't hold up very well at all in that sense. Um Especially as there's like, you know, 24 episodes a season, you know, they're just mining the same things repeatedly right, right. again and again and again and again. But 
But I would say it's intermittently funny and, you know, that might tend towards more of a neutral rating for me in that sense. Um, I will also say that the show did start out as edgy. Now, it was copying the British show so much that it benefited from that show's uh, daring, right? So it starts out as edgy, but then it kind of goes more into that farce thing. And I think that's when it gets old. So it couldn't, they couldn't really keep pushing the envelope. Maybe if they did, the show would be more looked upon as groundbreaking. I should also mention at the time, the show was completely critically panned, you know, for a long time. I think eventually critics, you know, eventually John Ritter did win an Emmy for his performance um, in the 80s. And I think eventually people looked upon it as, wow, this guy's physical comedy is pretty good. I think some critics did eventually realize there was goodness to the show. But it, originally it was yeah. pretty panned as just being empty headed and just, oh, you know, kind of a one note show that it kind of is. Um, but I want to play this really early clip from the first show, because I think this joke just took me off guard. Like it, it I think this joke is so kind of edgy for its time, uh, this little sequence that it actually made me just stop. And I had to note it down like, OK, I've got to mention this. Uh, so let's play that clip. This is from the first episode. And what's there to talk over, Jenna? I mean, I think he'd make a terrific roommate. Oh, so do I. Okay, let's ask him. No, no, no. Before we rush into this, I think that we should add up the pluses and the minuses. All right. Okay. He is a great cook. Plus. Plus. He would be good protection for us around the house. Plus. Plus. He's very good looking. Plus. Minus? Minus. You saw the way he was looking at you in there. I know you, Chrissy. You have a very low melting point. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a little bit of sweet talk and you fall apart. Look what happened with Frank. I know. But Frank seems so nice. He said he wanted me for a friend. Yeah, and then the next night he brought the friend. <laughs> like that's pretty pretty edgy, right? I mean, that's pretty funny. Yeah. I think that's a, a pretty good pretty good uh, one liner. Or you know, the next night he brought the friend. So the show started out with that kind of you know uh, risque uh, content, and then it kind of veered to be more benign and repetitive. Um, now, the worst thing about the show is obviously how it depicts homosexuality and how it addresses it. Uh, that is one of the most dated things. Uh, and I think that, um, as we mentioned, um, it's not harsh, right? I mean, another thing I should mention about the show that I didn't in the history is that the religious right did, there was a reverend who started a campaign against the show to try to get it banned or get sponsors to, to be banned. And John uh, Ritter went on TV, I think it was on the Dinah Shore show, uh, and basically told people, you know, buy more products from these people. You know, the band obviously didn't work. The show kept being successful. Um, I think the one thing that made the show probably hurt the show more than anything else was Suzanne Summers, the whole Suzanne Summers debacle. Um, but the show itself, the content never really succumbed to that. But you could see that religious right being against the show, even though its portrayal of gay characters is somewhat negative. That's because they acknowledged gay gayness at all, that it existed, right? Um, right? And the second episode has a sequence that that really illustrates this more than anything else, this kind of benign prejudice, right? Um, there is a the, the second show involves Chris Chrissy's father is a as a priest and or reverend, Reverend Snow, and he um <laughs> isn't that isn't that the care isn't that uh snow that's like fucking hunger games i don't know anyway um but uh 
uh, Reverend Snow is, there's several episodes where he tries to get her to move out because of the whole situation, you know, living with a man or whatever. Um, but in the second show, his her mother visits, and I think it's the only time her mother visits the show, and the plot is basically trying to keep her from knowing that Jack lives there at all. So they don't even mention that he's gay and that's okay. They just say, well, he doesn't live here, right? And they try to hide him and there's all these hijinks around that. Well, it eventually she kind of meets Mr. Roper and he kind of tells her what's going on. And then we have this sequence here after that, at the end of the show. Do you want to play that? <laughs> Chrissy, is this the young man who's sharing the apartment with you? Well, I, I... Hi, hey. Mr. Roper told me all about him. I thought he must be away since you let me have his room. No, Mother, it's not as bad as it looks. Yes, dear, I know. It's all right. <laughs> you, you mean that you don't mind? Mind? I'm delighted. But with all the terrible things that go on in this town, it's such a relief to know that you have a man to protect you. Or in this case, someone like Jack. <laughs> Well, I promise you, I'll never let them out of my sight. Oh, thanks, Jack. I know I can trust you. <laughs> so, yeah, there you have it, where it's basically, you know, a, a see, get, you know, homosexuality is seen as a weakness, as being less than a man. But at the same time, right. this is a very Christian woman who is fine with a gay person being involved in her daughter's life, which I think was, you know, you got to also look at it. This is a pre-AIDS. You know, so the, the stigmatism right. of being gay would be worse in the 80s, I think, as being untouchable. Well, one, one of the, I was just sort of thinking about this, you know, some of the other gay icons that weren't really called out as gay. I mean, obviously in the 60s and stuff like that, you had Liberace. And in the late 60s, I remember even on Bewitched, you had Paul oh, yeah. Lind, oh, who yeah. was very prominent. He was a superstar in the 70s. I mean, he's on Hollywood Squares, and yeah. it's like everybody knew yeah. deep down inside. He wasn't yes. said, but you knew he was gay. You know, there's just no doubt. Right. Everybody, I mean, even as a small kid, I knew. I mean, I had gay neighbors growing up as a kid, so, like, I kind of knew, you know, about that a little bit. You know, we kind of knew it was a little different from the, the, the usual in some way. But you had Paul Lind, who was, as you said, on, on shows that I watched and— and you had Rick Taylor, oh, yeah. who was very, oh, yeah. very, 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 very popular and very flamboyant, very fabulous, yeah. and yes, very flamboyant. And so, what was interesting to me about Jack's portrayal, right, and kind of closeted portrayal in a sense, was the other kind of iconic things you had at the time were your Liberace, your Paul Lind, your uh, Rip Taylor, who were just over the top flamboyant, almost essentially wearing like a tutu, dancing around. And you have this one character who's just like, he, yes, he plays it up at times, especially to Mr. Roper or Mr. Furley, you know, for comedic right. effect. But he's not really going like over the top, you know, limp-wristed, lisping, you know, all that kind of stuff. He, he for the most part, is, is playing it fairly straight, as it were, right, uh, so to speak. So I, just an interesting uh, kind of yeah and, and to your point there is a, a yeah he does that and it's almost a way of kind of teasing them he's more teasing the character right. than making fun of gay people really he's kind of like saying oh and he puts his arm around him and stuff to kind of mess with them 
Um, but there's another episode, and I forget which one I should have gotten this quote to, because this was a really good one that was kind of on the, you know, kind of how this isn't that much of a bash against gay people in some ways. There was um, one episode where I, I forget if it was Furley or Roper, but he says, like, you couldn't do this. You know, your your kind can't do this. And he's like, you know, we're we're not just hairdresser or you're, you know, like it's some kind of masculine job or something that he's doing. And he's all, you, you know, you should be a hairdresser or something like that. And he's all, well, we're not just hairdressers. Some of us are boxers. And yeah. I think that, um, you know, that was kind of an interesting uh, little ambiguous quote there. So I think um, it's kind of interesting how benign it kind of seems. But at the same time, yeah, if I were a gay person, I'm, I would probably be offended by a lot of it. Right. Um, and I'm offended yeah. by some of it anyway. Right. Just how you mentioned Larry's thing. Oh, it's benign. He's just a womanizer. But it goes so they go so far into that uh, into that that it becomes like, you know, he's a sociopath. He's uh, just a bad person. Right. So it's interesting. Right. Um, That's completely played off for comic effect, you know, which is really the most disturbing right. part to me. It's like, oh, Larry, he's just a right, scam. Right. You know, this is Larry being Larry. It's like, oh, he's kind of like a gross, creepy dude, you know. So some other, so my case for neutral, I'm going to go neutral on this because, uh, and I think a lot of it is nostalgia and a lot of it is, you know, my admiration for Ritter, especially. Um, and I did enjoy the shows kind of, and I do think there might be a place for them in some way. Um, you know, it's barely, I'm kind of on your side for the most part that a lot of it doesn't age very well, but I do, again, John Ritter's comedy. I, I, I laughed, you know, I watched it again. I laughed. Um, and the other thing with this age of streaming where you have all these shows at your fingertips and, you know, maybe you've watched all the new shows. Um, I think that it's weird what people gravitate toward. Um, like I was uh, visiting uh, my wife's cousin and her husband and they were watching a bunch of Columbo episodes, which is a show me and my wife also like. I think that's a sign of getting older. <laughs> you know, it's like such a grandpa show. Um, I love I'm Rockford is. Files. I love Rockford Files. I actually will defend Rockford Files as one of the greatest shows of all time. But um, because that's a more sophisticated show that I think holds up better. But Columbo is so formulaic. You know, it's like uh, something's been bothering me. You know, it's the same thing every time. And I think there's something comforting in that. And I found out that actually millennials love fucking Columbo. Like Columbo has become another really? one of these shows that's been popular on streaming. And I can't think of any show that's more dated in a way because it's so old. Like it's late 60s, early 70s. And you know, it's so repetitive, but at the same time, it's kind of comforting for that. A lot of shows now are so dramatic, especially dramas like comedies. Comedies are edgy, too. There's a lot of cringe humor. Like you look at Curb Your Enthusiasm, which probably gets some of the misunderstanding stuff from Three's Company, but takes it to this level no doubt. that is so dark. And, and sometimes you're, you're just like, it's hard to watch for me because it's so cringe humor, even though I think it's a brilliant. And I think Larry David's a genius. My wife can't watch it because yeah. of that. Because she's just like, it's too, it's too yeah, uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable humor. Um, and as yeah. much as I think Larry David's a genius, I think some people might want something simpler. And obviously, look at what the most popular sitcom of all time is. Fucking Big Bang Theory. That's as hackneyed uh, as this show horrible. ever was. Right? I mean, maybe that show at the beginning yeah. had something interesting to offer. But it just became super repetitive. And it's, I watch it, and I don't laugh at all. And it's probably because it, it's so hackneyed to me. Um, I'm sure there's funny jokes on it. I mean, you know, it's popular. I should give it another chance, but it's like, 
early seasons had its moments, but as soon as like the later seasons are just unwatchable trope hackneyed but garbage. People love it still, even though it's not one of these serial yeah. shows. It's not one of these edgy shows. So I think sometimes people want something that's comforting and familiar and that maybe is somewhat formulaic. And so I think you never know. And then I have to talk about The Office, one of my favorite shows ever, The American Office. And it, again, its popularity is incomprehensible to me. Why are people, I mean, I think it's a good show, but why are people so wanting to watch it now? You know, And maybe it's because it's right before a lot of what stuff that's going on now, Me Too. You know, There's a lot of jokes on The Office, and that's not even that old of a show that you couldn't do now. You know, Some of the right. Michael Scott kind of sexual stuff you know, wouldn't play in me too. You know, it just, it's, it's unfamiliar. I also think it's because the people who like it, it's their child, their very young childhood, you know, maybe when they were born, I was nostalgic for the late sixties and the sixties when I was a kid, maybe that's the two thousands for them, you know, for the office. So it's interesting what people are going to become obsessed with and you can't always tell. And, um, you know, case in point is this website, you found this blog called the kids in 201. That is a, pretty much an OCD, uh, borderline insane obsession with Three's Company. That, that That's what this site represents. I don't think it's borderline. Yeah, it's I over think it's the insane. Top. I mean, they analyze the artwork on the walls. They go through the details of Larry's apartment. And I love that. Because, the furniture. Yeah, the furniture, where, like where, where it came it from. Came from uh, the wardrobe. Uh, you know, it's, it's all the minutia of the show, all the kind of uh, peripheral things around the show. And ironically, the the latest thing the person did, I think the last post was 2018, was an episode guide, but they, the person stopped at episode, season four. So they weren't even in, interested yeah. in the content of the show as much as the minutiae and the the way it looked and the, um, you know, the- The kind of plants right, that, the were, plants on the that were on the set. It's like, so you don't yeah, know crazy. in this age where you have, anything at your fingertips, what people are going to become obsessed with. And I think the show has enough good things that it's probably neutral. Like, I think that people will still continue to look back on it um, and still continue to look, still continue to watch it and look at it in the future, even though overall, a lot of it doesn't hold up um, in today's climate. You know, the, the um, weird thing about those episode guides again, that you mentioned at stop in, in episode four is if you read through them, they're not only descriptions of the episode and what happened, you know, the synopsis right. and, and all that. There's like cultural analysis and so, like sort of like pseudo deep. It's not really that insightful, but at least the, the author tries to go into and say, hey, this is a reference to this. And this is a reference to this cultural thing, uh, kind of like what we're doing. So that's that's a worthwhile thing to do, of right. course. But um, you know, a, a lot of this kind of, this refers back to this earlier episode, and this was also this actor portrayed this, it, just an obsessive, crazy obsessive level of detail that you look at this and go, this person or people, I think it's one dude probably, have spent a big chunk of their lives obsessing about this show is boggling to me. This is like mind boggling. Well, there are all me. those people. Crazy. There are all those people. And, and uh, you know, I should quickly mention too, there's a whole drag version of this that would play in the city. They did a, they used to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They do Golden Girls and they would do a drag version of uh, Three's Company. And I have a friend who could have written this blog. His name is Jason Heffel. And he is completely into Three's Company. He's completely into old comedy. He loves soap. Um, his favorite show of all time is Golden Girls. 
and he knows every single thing about those shows. Um, he's probably watched the episodes hundreds of times. And so he, I know people like this. There are people like that, you know, that become obsessed yeah. with these old shows. Obviously, some of it's nostalgia, but, you know, they obviously like this stuff. Those, those people might be rare, but I do think there is something in this show, even as a cultural, you know, historical curio or a sign of the times, but also there are some funny moments. And I think in small doses, it's perfectly fine to watch the show. I just think you're not going to see people binging the show. It's not going to be a huge, so I'm not going to be hugely long on the show. It's prospects, but I do think that it's classic enough that people will, you know, that its value will be about what it is now. Okay. Well, on that note, we will leave it there. Thank you for listening to this episode six, come and knock on our door. We will see you next time where we will hit up either a movie TV show Uh, music, something of interest from our cultural past and get into the details and do our kind of analysis uh, tricks that we do. So see you next time. Thank you for joining us.